Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Karen Wallant. She is the author of Creating the Capacity for Attachment. Um, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a Harm Reduction Guide for a Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, and for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is Dr. Karen B. Wallach. She's uh, with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Karen, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. How are you, Kenneth? I'm great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Let's start. Uh, do Give me a little, like, a thumbnail synopsis. What is attachment theory? What is secure attachment insecure attachment. Where did this come from? Just give me a couple minutes of the background. Um, Sure. Um, Attachment theory, uh, the father of attachment theory is uh, John Bowlby coming out of England. And um, his uh, belief was that every person in a a healthy um, individual, if they are securely attached, means that they are interdependently attached, that behind every person is a whole lot of other people who support them and um, uh, help them to feel um, uh, content in life. And so in his view, um, and it has been proven by much research, um, 65% of all people seem to be having what's called a secure attachment, meaning that they really feel embedded in their lives, comfortable, uh, trusting of other people. And then the other 35% of people have a, a variety of different, um, uh, one side or the other, either feeling very clingy in relationships or feeling very avoidant in relationships. I like to use the analogy of the hammock, and I, uh, other um, attachment theorists have used that as well, so that in a secure attachment, there is this feeling that you are being held in by, by threads of um, relationships that really you can relax inside the hammock, you can be swinging in the air, you know, um, you can just feel uh, comfortable and that that's a secure attachment. In a, in a clinging attachment, you're sort of holding onto the sides because the middle is, is open, as it were, and not enough support. And in an avoidant attachment, um, you're holding on for dear life, but you're holding on by yourself. You can't, um, you can't let anybody help you at all. So that's sort of the, the size of the attachment paradigm. And uh, what brings about these uh, different attachment styles? Does this have to do with uh, being an infant and relationship to uh, caregivers? That is the theory uh, and, um, again, has been shown in a number of different uh, research studies over and over and over again uh, in, uh, in the strange situation, other studies such as that, research projects such as that. But it, the idea is that in a secure uh, attachment with caregiver and baby, the baby can feel um, held and um, and trusting, can feel that if, if she cries, um, mother is right there to respond to her, father is right there to respond to her, to help her in whatever she may need. Um, proximity matters, attunement matters, and what's called affect regulation, meaning that if the baby, if the child is, is crying, mother, father, caregiver is there to help comfort and reduce her anxiety, her fear. And so um, these days, with all the neurobiology that's, that's being studied, 
um, the it's very clear that uh, babies, um, you know, are social beings, and that babies um, with uh, it, their their mind develops in relationship to how they are treated by others. So that actually and literally, the how their neural pathways grow, how their organs grow in their brain is directly related to the kind of re- kind and quality of the relationship that they have with their caregivers which is quite remarkable to really have that clear and known. In studies with um, uh, traumatized babies from Romania, for example, um, those babies who had, you know, were the ones you may have seen pictures of um, in the orphanages that they had been in cribs and had, had very little stimulation, very little contact with any caregiver. There might have been 50 of these babies in one huge room, that kind of a thing, and no one to pick them up and stimulate them studies of their brains doing pictures um, have shown that their, their, the gray matter of their brain is actually a third smaller than a normal, healthy child. So we have some old science fiction stories where the babies are raised uh, by machines. This isn't a very viable possibility, is it? No, it wouldn't, wouldn't be too good for the human, uh, human race, no. <laughs> I think that's in Brave New World, if I remember that, and a few yeah, other stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what uh, what does attachment theory have to do with addiction treatment? Is there any relation? In my mind, there is, and uh, uh, I've sort of made that leap. I think that's partly what my 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 book is speaking to, and partly what my um, suggestion to clinicians is is based on this idea that. Um, uh, addiction can one of the roots of addiction, and not all. You know, there's so many uh, multiple causes for for addiction. But one of them may be that the early environment and the insecure attachment leads a child to um, uh, to crave a substance um, and to crave something else to soothe them because they cannot soothe. Um, uh, with the parent, so they look to uh, external others like you know stuffed animals or pacifiers or that kind of thing, and which you know paves the way for well if i can 't get if the baby may feel if i can 't get um, uh, responded to and soothed by mother, i will I see that the world does not care for me, and I have to find other substitutes secondary substitutes, and that 's where the idea of what an addiction is, which because in some ways we could look at addiction as a, a secondary substitute for wanting a relationship. And people will say things like, well, I feel so lonely, you know, drinking helps me because I feel so lonely, or um, I'm in this codependent relationship because if I'm left by myself, I just can't stand, you know, that kind of separateness. So one of my thoughts is that um, if the therapist can really find a way, and it's, you can't necessarily with every person that you work with, but can really um, uh, engage and um, be deeply connected to in a, in a healthy way, the person that they're treating, support them, um, enjoy them in, the, in, in understanding them, and in that kind of empathy, um, that can dislodge the toxicity of the substance that is uh, so dangerous. And we know from neurobiology that uh, when people are deeply connected in, in emotion, um, in a bonding experience, uh, you know, really deeply talking with one another, that chemicals, biochemicals of attachment are released actually in their brains. 
These are the chemicals of um, oxytocin and um, uh, endogenous opioids, which are, you know, like heroin, basically. So your mind will release this internal heroin, and that feels pretty darn good. Um, and if that happens inside the therapist's office, then the person is finding that with another human being, there can be connection, there can be trust, there can be empathy, there can be healing. And then that can transfer into other relationships as time goes on. Well, this seems also to relate to uh, an interview we did last year. We had Dr. Gabor Mate on, who's the author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and he was talking about how trauma turns genes on and off. So it's not like there's just a gene for addiction, but it can be turned on or off. If you have a, if you have a trauma in infancy, uh, even before you're born, in infancy, you know, as a young child, as an adolescent, he talks about how this can turn the, turn the genes for addiction on. So uh, That's this seems fascinating. That, I, I love reading his material. That is a fascinating idea. I can actually give you an example from just a session I had before um, before we're, we're speaking this evening. Someone I'm working with, who a woman I'm working with that is trying to um, uh, leave a very codependent, very codependent relationship. She's been married to this man for over 25 years, and it's a toxic, uh, uncomfortable relationship. He's extraordinarily condescending, and she has a lot of negative thoughts that run through her head. So she. Um, takes in his condescension and, you know, thinks she's just uh, can't do anything by herself and therefore stays attached with him. But in any case, she tonight was um, looking at uh, when he leaves, he sometimes just says, that's it, I'm done, and he walks out. And she, many people can probably relate to this, she has a feeling in the pit of her stomach of this in, intense pain, of this anxiousness. And as we really tried to look at that, um, examine it again from different angles, she was able to trace this to being a young child and um, being alone in her room at night and uh, really feeling like she was going to die because she was all alone. She's the youngest of like four or five kids, so she was put to bed before other, the other kids were. And she always felt this longing, this missing, this terror as she was upstairs and everybody else was downstairs. So... Um, you know that's a that would be a, it's a it's a trauma, but not a trauma of a huge kind. But nevertheless, it, the separation of that and probably many other examples like that. That was just one that she was really able to really remember. Um, you know, has caused her to completely fear uh, when he leaves. And she knows now. We were talking about this, she knows that it's not really about him. She doesn't really want him to stay. She just doesn't really want to be alone. And she's beginning to make that that to. Um, to separate herself from this enough to see the process and to say to herself, well, this feeling is not really about him. It's about her uh, anxiety, and she's attaching it to him, but she can remove that and make healthier attachments, if that made sense, I hope. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask one question before we get into some other things. Um, how is the attachment theory and attachment-based treatment therapy, how is this related to classical psychoanalysis or other psychodynamic approaches? Oh, that's a good question. I think it differs, actually, from a traditional uh, psychoanalytic um, treatment because um, in in that frame that uh, Freud had suggested, the, the he talked about the blank screen that the therapist doesn't really offer much, is relatively silent. The person 
um, is is uh, offering a lot of his material, but the therapist is not really engaging to form um, a, uh, a connection in the way that I, I think I'm speaking about. There's a there is always a real fear actually about getting very connected to a to a person that that might be considered um, a dangerous and might lead itself to all sorts of problems. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that um, this that the treatment here is anything but inside the office with words, you know, and um, you know, being able to talk with one another in a very caring manner. Um, so I think in that way it might be slightly different, um, more modern, I think, from today's perspective. But uh, this, the attachment um, approach comes out of a long line of what's called object relations, which came sort of after Freud. And the object relationists did believe that um, um, the, the, the study of relationships and how we are with one another is... Um, is what we can change in the therapy, and then how people see the therapist can make a big difference. So this has come sort of out of that same line of work. I noticed in your book uh, you talked about letting clients uh, call you outside of their sessions. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, for me, the, the thinking is that um, this, is a bit, this is a tall order to have someone uh, uh, stop a substance, let's say, that they've been using for quite some time. It's just a lot to ask or a lot for the person to ask of themselves to do. And these days, um, you know, therapy is usually once a week, possibly twice, but it's an expensive proposition for most people. And um, in Freud's day, actually, people were seen every day for a year. That's how it was done. It was like every day, and then you were essentially, um, you hopefully had, had completed what you needed to, to learn. But in that, there's a lot of time that happens between, you know, one session and the next. And I think that that um, really only has someone in the office for 50 minutes, and that's supposed to hold them for a whole week. And that might be nice for the therapist, but maybe really difficult for someone that's um, in treatment and may, they may need something different. So I, I do tell people that they can call me these days. They can text. They can email me. But... Um, uh, the ch- you know they might not get me on the first try. So what? O- who else can they call? What else can they do if I'm not available? Because I can't promise that. That would be uh, unrealistic. So people, uh, I actually do encourage people to keep me posted with things that, that are, is happening for them. I'd rather know than to find out a week later that they are really struggling. And usually contact is is brief. I mean it's not a whole session. If someone needs that much time, we'll try to rearrange. Uh, to, to fit that in, but you know, some reminders, some coaching. Um, I guess if that's what it is, you know, some sort of check-in to um, feel like they are remaining connected. That that sort of thing is certainly uh, something I think is part of what um, is expected of me as a clinician. You know, in most of our relationships, we don't see somebody once a week, and then we don't talk to them. You know, in, in our closest relationships, we have much more frequent contact than that. And in because of that, that's why I think we we need to see the therapeutic relationship as one that is a um, a powerful a powerful um, uh, uh, engagement, so that someone can take with them that relationship and walk out of the office and have that. And they may need a a brief you know reminder or check in or something during the week, but then they come back and then they can be you know re re um, experience that feeling again. Well, it's a real departure from standard addiction treatment programs um, where, you know, the the uh, counselor-led groups and, uh, you know, pr- 
traditionally they never had one-on-one sessions with anyone in the treatment program. They just came and led the groups and then left, and you didn't have any contact with your counselor outside of the group. Um, the first treatment I went through, I had a counselor that was kind of a maverick, and actually after the you know, after the treatment was finished, I was back home. Uh, she let me call her up at work, and it was extremely valuable to me and very helpful. It was. Oh, see, you remember most... that? See that? Yeah. Oh, I remember. Yeah, we were very good friends. Um, yeah, we got along great together, and you know, it was very helpful. Um, nothing, nothing else in the treat. Well, others, there were some other things in the treatment that were helpful. It was a mixed-up uh, thing. It was half twelve-step and half cognitive behavioral. And I got some good cognitive behavioral things from it. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of, you know, having one-on-one contact, I think it's really important. Uh, you see that in DBT also, mm-hmm. that people are, you know, allowed to contact their therapists outside the sessions. That's right. And I think it's a really good thing, but it's a, it's a great departure from a lot of traditions. It is. It used to be seen as this person is trying to interrupt your life, like you know how how aggressive and hostile it was that someone would actually try to call you, you know, outside of the session frame. I mean, my goodness, people's lives go on. Something else happens. They want to be able to to check in, to remember something that they learned with you, to keep you posted on something that's happening. And it it's not to be um, it's it's to be part of not not. Um, you know, the work really happens inside of the office as well as it will happen in these contacts as needed. And I would say that not every not every person calls. I mean, you know, or it's it just letting that be a part of that we are in um, a, a bonded experience together where life goes on, but there is a connection that remains uh, inside the office, outside of the office, I think is really valuable. And I think people do appreciate that. There was another thing in the book you mentioned that uh, the clients were not abusive of this permission to call you. No, no, I, and, I, and I, I, I have found that more times than not, people really, you know, measure and weigh what they need and when they need it. And these days with email, when I wrote this book, there I don't think email was even available. Yeah, probably not. No, of course not. But um, e- sometimes people will email something because they just want me to to to. to uh, be aware of what's going on for them um, in between of a session, and there's not much to, to do, but just they're just filling me in. I, I have noticed over time that there are some people who are more um, high needs than what when I can give to them. And just like with a high needs baby, to put it in that term, you need other caretakers to also step in. And that's where I think also the power of the group, um, be that a- any group you may choose from. I mean, it's, you know, AA, rational recovery, whatever it is that you want to use, the group experience is very powerful, and as is, um, you know, good friends, um, spouses, etc. So that people can, um, the, the more high needs person has to have a list. But those people, I will sort of say, okay, who else can you call? Like I said before, who else can you also reach if you can't reach me? Because they're, because that's also really the way life is. We can't always get the person we want, but we've got to be able to extend out our world to other people so that we can still get what we need rather than it only gets located in one. And I think that's an important thing to say. I would not want a clinician or a person hearing this to think, okay, they have to just only talk to the therapist. That's just too exclusive. I think the idea mm-hmm. is to learn how to communicate and express yourself so that you can attach to many people, not just to one. 
Well, there have to be some boundaries. Um, I'm, you know, I had an experience with a member of our Hams group that uh, was uh, calling me. Um, well, when she was intoxicated and uh, yeah. inappropriately, and I just said, you know, you can't do this. Call me, you know, when you're not drinking, and call me, or you can even call me if you're drinking if you have issues to talk about alcohol. But it, you know, if you want to. Get talk about romantic issues when you're drunk. That's not. I'm not the person to call. <laughs> Absolutely, that's. I, I completely agree. Um, well, you talked about normative abuse in your book. What is normative abuse? The term normative abuse um, is uh, really means that it, it is is an understanding of the and empathizing with. Um, the cultural, what our cultural norms are in, in any society, and realizing that those change over time. And the, the understanding is that, you know, just about, you can pick so many different um, norms that have been the case throughout history, and they generally, with every generation, is changed um, and uh, hopefully improved upon. So, for example, foot binding in China was... Um, is normative abuse that that uh, parenting choice for young girls was um, done before the age of three, um, and um, girls' feet were, were were put into you know the the toes were curled over and then they were, they were bound so that they would have a in the end a three inch long foot, and that was it. And the idea was that was that was considered beauty in China, but they could not walk. I mean, it really completely destroyed their feet, but. Um, that was a practice, a social practice that was considered good parenting if you did it, and if you didn't, you were, you know, um, shamed as a, as a parent. So that model, it, what I mean by using that as an example, is that in every in every culture um, we have um, edicts that parents raise their kids by, and then later we go, oh my gosh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And not even parent to child, but it could be, it takes cigarette smoking. I mean that that was something that was very seen as what you should do, that everybody smoked. And then, my gosh, oh, look, this is killing us, <laughs> you know, and then it, it, it changes. So we, in any generation that we're in, we have empathy for the generation before that there are certain rules and mores that they had to follow, and then we change them. These days I I tend to think that um, education is, is our latest uh, foot-binding experience. A friend of mine, Liz Jorgensen, uh, also a clinician, calls it um, brain-binding, you know, the amount of stress and pressure that our, our, our kindergartners through 12th grade, through college are under um, to have a certain amount of material that they have to have, et cetera, et cetera, is perhaps one of our generation's um, normative abuse. And the, the value of that in, in why I mention that in this book and in my thinking is that um, the view that attachment is wrong and that all, we're doing, all we need to do as parents in our society is to raise People who are self-reliant, independent, you know, don't need anybody. That had been the social more, the social norm. And what I and many other people are suggesting is that instead, no, there's really attachment that is the the, the norm that we need to to look at. Um, and it is normative abuse to do things like um, have a baby cry herself to sleep night after night after night and not come in and check and not be empathic to that. That is an example, in my opinion, of, of normative abuse, as is the kind of education that doesn't, you know, let up, that kind of thing. And that has its own, you know, problems for it, to it. Well, um, since you mentioned education, we'll get to this soon, because uh, 
I know you're also on the board of attachment parenting, I believe. Right. Yes, I am. Um, which I think is highly related. But, you know, the education system, is, as I understand it, has gotten so insane because they don't have recess anymore. That's correct. And everybody, and their brother seems to have ADHD. Right. And the one thing that, that the research showed that that stops it is when you let the kids go out and run around for half an hour. Right, crazy, well, isn't it? Right. Yeah, the ADHD symptoms go away. You don't need to put drugs on into these kids. Um, people don't know what some of these drugs are, you know. Uh, Ritalin is the most common, but there's also Adderall, which we used to call Dexedrine. It's amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, and okay. the the other one that you can prescribe for six-year-olds is desoxin, and you look up the uh, generic name of that, that's methamphetamine. <laughs> I mean, right. our psychiatrists are giving six-year-olds methamphetamine to cure their ADHD instead of giving them recess and letting them run around. Well, there are other things, too, that go along with that. The, the day is very long for the child. The, um, the way that the material is being presented um, could also be, you know, not not best for all kids. Boys more than girls have trouble sitting for, you know, six to eight hours. And there's actually a lot of uh, new research that says if you teach children how to meditate, and there's a whole movement of this that is uh, West Coast based, I think, especially and and, and now understandably, and coming East Coast as well, of uh, teaching meditation so that kids learn how to focus their mind. And when the mind is focused, and meditation has now come in through DVT and other, you know, systems of, of psychotherapy, it's been a tremendous help. But that uh, learning how to do that, to breathe, to um, to single-mindedly focus, of course, you can see how that would be a real um, assistance to anyone having focusing problem, and and can be taught to very young children actually. Could could be part of the, the classroom experience all the way through. I would love to see that all the way through you know, um, school, but you'd have to take time out of the the schedule of the day, and that's, you know, again, our society doesn't really quite want that right now. We just want, you know, to put as much information into kids' heads as we possibly can. Yeah, but you know, somebody needs to do a study that will show that they'll learn better if you if you don't uh, pressure cook them. You can't. Yeah, I mean, as, and anxiety as, and ADHD, are, there's a lot of similarities between those. It's hard to kind of pick out which is what. So again, you know, the, the system is so stressed. Kids are really are really stressed, and then you want, and then you know, that would factor into addiction for sure. Uh, peers, you know, kids, um, you know, uh, in socializing, releasing the pressure and feeling so much better. I hate to say it, but by using a drug that then just relaxes them and takes away, you know, how 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 stressful they are. And we have to do. I, I think the whole system needs a, a, an overhaul. <laughs> we have to do it differently. It seems to me. Yeah, I'm an adult, and for me to read six hours straight is just terrible. And, you know, the way I used to do it all the time was smoking cigarettes, but I haven't smoked mm-hmm. cigarettes in three years now, and I can't sit there and sit down and read for six hours straight. Well, sure, the nicotine would really get you going, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but now I need to get up and, you know, take a break and walk around for half an hour and then come back and read for another couple hours. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what? Some other examples of normative abuse in child raising, child raising would be probably spanking or yelling at yeah. your kids, making them feel small, making them feel, you know, like like a piece of shit, you know. Absolutely. And that, you know, just think back, that was not all that long ago that, you know, every parent had their belt, 
to be used on not every sorry this is exaggeration there were a lot more that was a more normal thing to do which is to be taking out a belt and and um you know beating a child now that's considered child abuse you can be arrested for that so you know the the more the values and the, the norms have really changed in a good way fantastically um and uh uh, very, very important because in the idea of attachment, attachment parenting, um, which really just means being empathic, you know, being responsive. It does not mean giving in or letting your kid do whatever they want, but it means being responsive and empathic and understanding, being able to say a no. No is sometimes the most empathic thing you can do, absolutely the most empathic thing you can do. Um, but um, being able to do that without a harsh or punitive or condescending approach. Now, I saw a lot of this getting incorporated into the traditional old-fashioned addiction treatment. Um, people would come in and, well, they'd be told, your, your thinking is stinking and your best thinking got you here. No one is too dumb for AA, but a lot of people are too smart for it. Uh, people, you know, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth. A lot of people got really put down and just, you know, treat, treated just like a piece of crap once again. Um, I've, I, you know, I've kind of theorized that people accepted this because that's how they grew up and they're they're back in their normal family again. That probably is true, and it may have spoken been speaking a language they knew. You know, I mean, it was a familiar way to be spoken to. You know, I'm not arguing for that approach, but I'm saying it probably did register somewhere in an emotional center for them that you know that's how you're spoken to, and you know, you gotta you gotta uh, um, get this now. The, the harshness, I think, did a lot of the daytop, a lot of those programs use that, and, and for some people, it seemed to help them to um, become sober. Not well, for everybody, but for some people. You know, statistically, um, Bill Miller did some review of this. He found all this confrontational approach was, you know, less effective than doing nothing at all. So um, there's a lot of evidence against the confrontational approach, but I think a lot of people accepted it because it was like being home again. You know, it's interesting you say that because originally when I think about this, part of why I wrote this book at the time that I wrote it was that I was having a difference of opinion with other people on a team I was I was working at in a hospital and I wanted to have that much more empathic approach and understanding and sort of let's you know let's get to the the uh dependency issue and to the what the substance does and um work work in a way that I was finding most helpful and there were other people especially 20 some years ago that were really very very confrontative and it was just I didn't uh, I I wanted to make my voice heard that I and I wanted to help other people who also felt that there was another direction to go. And at the time that I wrote this, that was the very beginning of when um I mean now talking about normative abuse, at the time breastfeeding um was considered, you know, uh people were aghast. One one did not breastfeed. That was still quite um uh not traditional. And now think about this in New York City, you know, uh Mayor Bloomberg just uh, had a law passed that if you do not breastfeed, you have to have it. You get a talking to from the nurse, and uh, the nurse, you know, you have to sign a form to get the formula. And I'm not arguing for that either, but I'm saying, look at how this has changed in 20 years. It's really incredible. <laughs> yeah, Bloomberg wants to legislate everything, and that's not the way to do it. But yeah, breastfeeding is the norm. The, the 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 switch has happened. It's like, well, now everyone has to do this. But the idea that breastfeeding and breastfeeding is better for a million reasons, but not something that every parent can do, and 
every mo- every person has, I guess, has a choice in that. It's more complicated than that. But anyway, the idea that the norm has changed so much from when I was raising, when I was uh, a new parent. Yeah, I kind of missed the whole thing. I mean, I was breastfed as a baby, and then I haven't had children, so I missed kind of this whole thing that you know where it got unpopular. No, it did. You know, the sci- it was sort of scientific. You know, the scientific approach was you sterilize all the bottles. And if you think about the 50s, I think there was a huge science ruled, you know, germs mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. that, I, I think, were coming in that, the, the 40s, too. Part of what I think, oh, who's that? Watkins, um, uh, he didn't want you to touch your baby. And part of that seemed to be that the, the germ piece, you didn't want to have your baby be, you know, you, you could get your, your baby dirty, that kind of thing. Again, these are all practices that you know. Now we look at what, and then there'll be then now. The only thing that comforts me now is that I think that whatever has happened with my children and I is that you know the next generation. I hopefully they'll forgive me for whatever I didn't know that later we find out wasn't a good idea. You know, I don't know what it will be, but I'm sure it'll be something. Yeah, I was a farm boy, so as a infant, you know, I played in the dirt. I ate dirt. Um, I got a good immune immune system built up apparently. So that was probably better than yeah than having an antiseptic everywhere so that you can't you know uh, <laughs> have any germs anywhere. Well, they've, there's some studies lately that say that you know if it's too antiseptic, the children don't develop an immune system. That's right. Uh, you know, so they say, you know, yeah. But we were in clean Everything dirt. changes. That that's one thing I know. Everything changes. You know, <laughs> that's what happens. At least the good thing is farm dirt is clean dirt. City dirt can be awfully nasty and dirty dirt. This would be true. Um, well, let's go on with some more of these questions. We kind of got a little sidetracked here. Uh, how does the concept of harm reduction fit uh, with the attachment perspective? I think what can be seen as similar is that, and is similar, is that um, the root of all of this is empathy. To me, empathy is the glue that ties us all together as different cultures, as different people, as um you know, um, different views on many things. But but empathy meaning we need to feel, as Freud said, we have to feel ourselves into another person or as the uh, Native Americans say, to walk a mile in someone else's moccasins. Um, because if you if you can imagine or be within someone else's mind space and see where they're coming from rather than pushing onto them any particular treatment um, approach, I think it's really the better way to go about it. And I think it's what I, I find... Um, from the harm reduction model is a very useful concept. In in looking at your material, actually, before when we had this meeting tonight and reading through it, I realized that I had been using some of the harm reduction principles without knowing I was doing that. And I, I apologize for not having read your book beforehand, but uh, <laughs> and I realized that one person, I can think of one person in particular who had wanted, um, she did not want to go to AA, which is fine. I said, well, what, you know, what would be helpful to you? And she and I. Um, you know, we, we started looking at why would she want to stop drinking, and what would be the, the value of that for her, and why was she drinking? And for her, the the main compelling reason why she was drinking was because her husband—a different case, another codependent case, actually—but um, her husband drank, and she wanted to be able to have a connection with him. And so, over time, when she realized that she wanted her sobriety, she wanted her um, clear-headed thinking, she wanted to be as productive as she possibly could do and could be. And that mattered more to her than having that hour with him drinking and drinking. She began to reduce. And first she reduced by, like, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Then she went, you know, all week. And then finally she went to uh, weekends as well. She wasn't going to drink. And now she's been sober quite some time. But we did it in a way that 
matched her pace. That was what she wanted. Um, and I believe that she feels really empowered by that because it was her, it was her decision, it was her approach. Um, I w- if she had not, I mean, whatever the, the process was she was going to do, I certainly wouldn't have um, given up on her uh, and told her she, I wouldn't work with her. I don't believe, but I certainly was on her on the side of let's help you to reduce, let's help you to stop. Don't you want to? Yes, I do. Well, then let's help that to happen. She did that without um, AA. Actually, she did. Also, she's a spiritual, very spiritual person. But for her, um, she found that seeing uh, someone who is seeing me, as well as seeing someone who has a like a, a very spiritual sort of practice and meditation and guided meditations and things like that, really intrigued her. So um, that was where she she took herself as well between that spiritual work and then her psychotherapy. And she's been so sober without any substances. I think this is three years now. Now, that reminds me of a story that uh, one of the members of our HAMS group uh, told me that something like 10 years ago, he was talking to his therapist about his drinking, and he said, well, this is the plan I want to have. I want to drink once every 10 days and uh, not drink anything the other nine days. And the therapist said, that's a cockamamie plan. You get to AA right now. Hmm. And I think he walked out on his therapist, probably didn't come back. Well, maybe that was a smart thing, perhaps. <laughs> I, I don't pretend to know more than the people I work with. I pretend I don't pretend to know more than anything, but I, I, I have the idea that I'm on the journey with, with people I, I'm working with, and I respect that they you know, know themselves better than I ever will. And I, the best I can try to do is to try to put myself into their mind space for a moment and just to sort of think what do they see and what do they think and what do they feel for just a moment at a time, I, I, I approximate as best I can. Um, I don't know that we ever can be inside of someone I don't think we can ever be inside of someone else's you know, being, but uh, words help to describe um, someone else's you know, self-space, and um, I try my best to be there, but I don't try to judge, for sure, because I really don't know. Years ago when I was at the hospital, we we uh, discharged somebody I, I, he must have used or something, and everyone pronounced him, you know, hopeless, that kind of thing. And he, of course, left the hospital saying, I'll show you, which was correct on his part. And sure enough, you know, a year later he called me to say, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, I was so glad he had been sober that whole time and continued to stay sober. Just more than one way. It's absolutely more than one way. Well, I think we've seen a lot of changes um, in the in the treatment programs and in individual therapists um, in recent years. In the past decade, there's been a lot more acceptance of uh, new ideas of non-coercive approaches. Uh, motivational interviewing has come okay. in for a lot of people. I still think the majority of treatment centers are still, you know, they're they're stuck in the dark ages. But a lot have a lot of them have changed. I don't mm-hmm. think the majority have changed yet. Um, oh, all too often, people want to say, you know, well, we're going to call what we're doing motivational interviewing, but we're going to do the same old shit that we always did. But we'll call it motivational interviewing, and we'll say it's evidence based, and then we'll confront people the same way we always did. That's still right. going on, but uh, a but lot have any treatment setting. I think that the idea of the group, having a group of people who are in recovery, talking with one another is very powerful. It reduces the shame just tremendously to have people who understand on a gut level what it's like 
and I, I you know that is one of the the values of AA or any other program that allows that not I don't say allow that encourages that kind of um, dialogue and um, realness and not shame. I mean, it's very very important and across every, in a therapist's office, one to one, in a group, in any which way you can have it. That's very important. It can be very helpful to, I think, the majority of people to have a group. There are some people that just can't talk in groups, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. And so they shouldn't have to go to a group. No, they don't. No, I would agree. There's no one size fits all for anything. But I think the majority do benefit from a group where they can talk freely. Yes, I would agree with that very much. Um, well, we're good. We're. Getting short on time, so I want to get to one last question here, because you're going to be a speaker at the Harvard Addictions Conference next March. Yes, and I will. So tell me all about that. Um, I'm uh, very honored. I'm I'm returning to speak there. I spoke there in 2005, and we'll be returning this time speaking. I believe my topic is um, the heart of the matter uh, clinical observations on on the role of attachment in um, addictions treatment, um, and um, really looking forward to that. Last time that I was there, um, one of the uh, audience participants was so intrigued by or so encouraged by this discussion of attachment that he um, uh, was bolstered to start his own um, really remarkable programs called Recovery Without Walls in the Cape Cod area. And these are um, uh, people in recovery, women in recovery, helping other women in recovery in everything from housing needs to transportation to helping them go to college, and they all help each other. He really, he's done an amazing job. That's William Doherty in, in, in Cape Cod. So I'm curious what will happen this time. I'm excited to go and to um, dialogue with other clinicians. It's a lot. I think 650, 700 people come every year to the addictions conference in Harvard, and there's. Uh, Lectures over two days um, and lots of um, discussion and lots of fertilization of, of different people's views and, and discussion points. It's really fantastic. So well, that's that like March eight and nine, I think. That sounds really interesting. Recovery without walls. I'm going to have to look him up and maybe we'll oh, have yeah, look him on up. the show. Oh, you yeah. should have him on the show. He's done a remarkable, remarkable job. That I think that, and if anyone wants to find it, I think it's recoverywithoutwalls.org. Um, He's just, it's been remarkable. And it's all uh, uh, funded by um, fundraisers. There are no, there's no government dollars, I believe, if I understood him correctly. Um, and it's a, it, they've, they're on the Cape, I think all over the Cape. Um, they've been able to get hospitals and doctors to work with them. And what he, I think what he, what he said to me is what he found most important was the idea I was saying is that, you know, interdependency, right, we're all connected with one another. And to help someone in recovery, they have to be supported in all, like the hammock. It's the hammock. Mm-hmm. Every aspect has to be helped to get someone to really be able to recover in, in every way possible. And he took that model, and I mean, that idea, and has really made this remarkable program. Well, that's something I'm going to definitely have to check out. Now, we're running out of time, so I want to wish you good luck at Harvard, and thank you be thank you very much for being our guest tonight, uh, Karen Wallant. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Kenneth. And everyone, come back next week. Our guest will be Judge Jim Gray. He is the Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate, and he's written a book about the failure of the drug war, and we'll be hearing why the drug war does not work. So thank you, everyone, and good night.
tonight. 